morning preaching from 5 to 17, but I will start at verse 1 to pull a little bit of context into what we are looking at today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. But while there was jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So this morning we are going to go from, like I said, 5 through 17. And the outline is as such. uh, Some general observations of this text. Uh, Now if we remember correctly, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians because... In this specific part of the book, he is addressing divisions, right? We have that Paul and Apollos, and even early in the book, uh, a couple other factions that are within the church. And he is addressing the Corinthians and saying, this should not be, because if you see in the beginning of chapter 3, there is kind of a contrast he is making. There is the fleshly way of thinking and the spiritual way of thinking. He is saying, you are being fleshly, right? Not spiritual, okay? So the The way they are doing church, the way they are being church, the way they are behaving in splitting the church among these leaders is directly linked to spiritual immaturity. And he says as such when he calls them infants, right? But the root of the problem is because the Corinthians in this town that's known for progression, right, and and striving to do better and better, and philosophy and sophistry, They wanted to find worldly expression in the church. And that's a big no-no, you see. 
And so he's writing here, and, and he gives three different metaphors from verse 5 through 9. We have the metaphor of like the garden or the field, where he addresses them, hey, planters and waterers and the field, right? And the next metaphor from 10 to 15 is the building. Paul is the master builder, right? And he talks about other builders and the foundation. And the third metaphor we have is 16 and 17, which is the temple, okay? Uh, so we're going to kind of work through those ideas and look... We're going to look specifically at three things. God's workers, God's building, and then kind of God's glorious temple at the end. All right. Uh, what Eugene preached last week, which was verses 1 through 4, which is great. Uh, and if you remember, he had the slideshow with a SWAT guy, right? And he's like, hey, we're all recruited for SWAT, and we're on this mission, so we have to do this mission together. And he was speaking largely on individual responsibility, which is very true. And he made kind of four points that the SWAT members or the church members would be spiritual people, a wise people, an ardent people, and a transformed people. See, they get the, the cool little acronym, right? SWAT. And this illustration is, uh, is great, not only because shooting is fun, but the idea of being on a SWAT team is is uh, just really relevant because we see that each individual members have a responsibility, right? But that responsibility is expressed as part of a bigger whole. And that is what Paul is talking about in this text, you see. Can you imagine if you are part of this SWAT team and you're called in to do, say for instance, uh, some terrorists have taken hostages and they're going to say, hey, we're going to kill these people if our demands aren't met. Okay, SWAT team, you guys are called up. So we're going to go save these people and kill the bad guys, right? That's what SWAT teams do. Except on your particular team, there is one guy who's like, I'm tired. I don't, I don't really want to do it. No, I don't want to wear all this stuff. I don't want to carry this weapon. So just go without me. And another guy is like, I just want to eat some donuts. That's, I don't want to rescue these. I don't know these people. These bad guys have not done me personal harm. So I don't see why I have to be bothered with this mission. I have no, I have no dog in this fight, right? I just, real, I just joined SWAT because I really like the uniform, you know, right? Your team would fall apart, would it not, right? Or, or even worse, in the middle of the mission, when you are clearing the building, some guy's like, I quit. My boots got wet. I will go no further. You're on your own, right? Or if you go into a room, and, and go through your room clearing procedure. And some guy's like, this is way too dangerous, you guys. What are we doing? You see, if each individual member has that kind of attitude where the mission is not in mind, they don't have their individual responsibilities in mind, or the team in mind, it falls apart. The good guys die, and the bad guys win <laughs> in that scenario. But so too with the church, where, where Paul is speaking about individual responsibility practice as part of a whole. And that's what we're going to look at here. So first... God's workers, and remember, while we are kind of uh, traveling down the text, remember the background of the Corinthians' way of thinking and how Paul is trying to correct them, right? So we, we, we through this entire, the, the entirety of this text, we have the worldly way of thinking and the spiritual way of thinking, okay? So here we go. God's workers. How, how are the Corinthians evaluating these people? Paul, Apollos, Peter, right? How are they evaluating them? Well, through a worldly lens, okay? 
Because, again, the culture they lived in is full of upward mobility and progress, philosophy and rhetoric, and that's what they wanted from their leaders, right? So we have here a fractured church based on verbal eloquence and sophistry, right? And the teaching of a particular person. Hey, he teaches in a very particular way, and he sounds really wise, so I'm going to follow this guy, right? And if we're going to be honest, it's easy for us to do the same, right, in the church, is the speaker funny? Is he engaging? Is he clever and witty? Right? Does he keep my attention? Does he wear the right clothes? Does he entertain me? Right? Is he on top of the latest trends? Does he, does he perform his role in a way that pleases my worldly standards? Right? We, we, can, we can paste that onto the speaker. Right? Or we also have, I am of Piper. I am of MacArthur. Who do you, who do you read? I am of Sproul, right? Oh, no, I, I'm of Jesus. We, we still fracture over silliness. What he is saying, though, is the questions that we should really be asking is, are not those questions. They are different, right? The questions we should be asking is, is that speaker, preacher, elder, is he teaching the work of Christ clearly and accurately? Were the glories of the cross proclaimed, put proudly on display? Was the sermon clear? Do I have a greater understanding of the gospel and God's work in my life because of what he just said and the text he just explained? Do I have an elevated view of Christ because I've been saturated by the gospel during the worship service? Was I confronted with sin and its ultimate and only solution, which is the work of Christ? Right? Those are the questions that we should be asking. How faithful was this elder to his job? Not... I didn't like the method in which he did it, you see. Also, as an aside, if you are tired of hearing about the cross or the gospel, it is not because the cross is boring, it's because your heart is jaded, you see. So as we look at this text, verse 5, what does Paul say? At the very beginning of verse 5, what then is Apollos? What then is Apollos? Not... Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? What? They are things. And he does this very deliberately, right? At the end of the sentence, he says, servants through whom you believed. That word for servants is diakonoi. Does that sound familiar? Deacons. Okay. Deacons are servers in the church. So what are these guys? The reason why he uses that word is because um, he is kind of pointing to they're lowly status. They are just a thing to be used by God. They are just merely fulfilling God's given role to them. Right? And then he goes on in this metaphor from verse uh, 5 to, I'm sorry, yeah, 5 to 9, about the planter and the waterer, right? I planted, this is verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, this comparison is important because you have to ask yourself if you own, you know, a garden or a vineyard, vineyard imagery used plenty of times throughout all of Scripture, which one is more important? Well, the idea is one without the other one is rather useless, right? One has a particular role that serves the whole, see? Both are essential when engaged in the same end goal. The rivalry between a planter and a waterer is not only silly, but it's absurd, But more so than that, every worker, whether planter, waterer, tiller, whatever, 
is insignificant before God since he is the one that actually produces growth. And at the end of the day, each, the planter and the waterer, will stand responsible before God. See, So he who plants, in verse 8, he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So the main concern, again, is not the method of the work, but the faithfulness to which they are serving God's call, right? In verse 8, again, he who plants, he who waters are one. There is a cooperation and a solidarity there that that Paul is pointing to. But also, he has this language about wages. Each will receive his wages or a reward. Of course, we want to ask, what is that? What is that wage or what is that reward? I think he kind of makes it clear in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's writing to the Thessalonians and he says, uh, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive... No, no, I'm going to back up even more. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there's a summary of their work with the Thessalonians there. And then later on, in verse 19 and 20, where he talks about this reward. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Right? So to see his, his work of planting come to fruition, that is the reward. And it serves, this idea of having a reward to each serves to intensify our responsibility to God. Right? So who is it that gives this reward? The Corinthians thought it was those throngs of people huddled at the feet of Apollos or Paul. Right? But who is the one that actually gives the reward? Not them. It is God Almighty. Who is the ultimate judge of the work? Who can actually, truthfully, honestly say, yes, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, the Corinthians thought the throng of people huddled at the feet of leaders. That is false. At the end of the day, God is the one who declares as such. God is the one who rewards as such, right? Especially if we look down a little bit to this idea of fire in verses 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So this testing by fire, uh, by the way, as an aside, this text is often used to point towards purgatory. As we can see, if you simply put it in context, it has nothing to do with purgatory, okay? What are we talking about here? Paul has, uh, has two categories for work, right? And you can see that in verse 12. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Okay? There are two categories. And two categories of building materials, it, often when we hear the idea of fire, we think, you know, like there's a refining or there's a destroying or there's a punishing But this fire is none of those. This fire is actually a revealing, right? A revealing of which work was faithful, you see. So he is simply putting two categories of work forward. At the end of the day, 
there are two kinds of work. One will stand the test of time right? and tribulation, and this is the gold, the precious stuff. The other stuff will be consumed because we will readily see that that work was not faithful. Okay? That's what he's talking about. And then, of course, he says the work must be built on this foundation. Later on, he has this language of, and it's kind of scary, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this is not a, this is not a hey, look, his work was burned up. He's not going to make it. This is not what he's talking about. This is a, he will be saved, as the text clearly says, but only as through fire is kind of a, the equivalent of like, by the skin of his teeth. So severe warning, okay, and that's what he's saying. Just severe warning, and this is not a, your salvation is in peril. Because, of course, salvation is not contingent upon our own works, but purely on the perfect and sufficient work of Christ. Okay? So, what, what do we ask of leaders? How faithful are they in building on that foundation? That is what is important. Okay? So that's the first point in terms of God's workers. How to evaluate them. Secondly, we are all recruited to work. So that SWAT team that Eugene was talking about, there is no opting out. If you are a believer, you are recruited. You're, you're in, right? So the question that you must ask yourself is, what role must I play on this team? How am I to build on this foundation faithfully so that it is gold and precious stones and not hay and wood and straw, right? <clears throat> if you will look over the text, just glance and count how many times is the word each used? It's about five times. Five times the word each is used. And when we think each, it sounds very individualistic, does it not? Each one, each one, each one. But that's not what he's talking about. Okay? Um, I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, are you, as a part of this, working properly? Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see. And you can see this in the language that Paul uses, too. It's very rarely an individual ministry. It's all, he's always referring to a corporate ministry that we are all called to. Okay. We can also see this in verse 8 again. He says, he who plants and waters are one. Paul is emphasizing the role of the person and not the individual himself. Right? And then in the next metaphor, the building one, he refers to himself as the skilled master builder. What does that tell us? This imagery tells us that he is kind of like the foreman of this project. And under him are all these other guys who are going to come 
and, and work on this project together. And what he says very loudly, clearly, and consistently is that we are all called to build. So the question really is not if you will build, because it is assumed that you will do so. The question is how faithfully will you build, right? How faithful will you stay to this foundation and build upon it? See, the Corinthians, again, were focusing on the person and not the role that they were supposed to play, right? So what you have to ask, what is my role in this building on the foundation of Christ? Am I fulfilling it, and am I faithful, or have I been faithful in my work? Okay? And also, if you read ahead a little bit in this book, 1 Corinthians, uh, in chapter 12, right, he talks about spiritual gifts. And to no surprise, oh, I went to... I'm going to read a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the works of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay? So not only are we called to do this work, but we are also gifted. Each, each believer has at least one spiritual gift. How do I find my gift? Read scripture, pray, practice in church. That's it. You don't have to take a test. You just read scripture, pray, practice in the church. Okay? All right. Next metaphor. God's building. This metaphor is from verses 10 to 15. Would you like to see a picture of this building? Look around the room. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. This building belongs to God. It is not a personal project. It is not a personal kingdom. This is God's building, God's church. So we look at, at the metaphor, a little piece of it. Who are the fellow workers? The ministers are. Who is the field? Well, the Corinthians. What is God's intent in using this metaphor? Growth and fruitfulness, and how is that accomplished? By these ministers nurturing the field, which is the Corinthians, right? Faithful workers. What does that mean for us? It means that we as the church understand that self-sufficiency and complacently are just booted out the window. That has no place in the Christian life or the Christian church, you see? God calls for waterers and planters as well as, as, well as those to receive the watering, and the planting. There's this relationship, right? God's fellow workers, God's field. The issue is we are a proud people and we don't enjoy being confronted with our own specific, ugly, wretched sins. I don't want to be watered. I don't want to be planted. I can do it on my own. That's not, that is far from the foundation. That is not the gospel, Right? We don't like admitting that we need someone else. Scripture says very different. Not only 
do you need someone else? You are also needed. There's this crazy symbiotic relationship that Paul is talking about, right? And God calls us to be a building that reflects the foundation. So if we, if we observe the foundation and what that means, what is foundational? The gospel. Did you need Jesus or did you just want him a little bit? Same too with the church and the expression of that faith. The church is a people that collectively works to apply God's wisdom to the problem of sin. And everything we should do should not wander far from that. We need to preach the gospel. Sin must be confronted and Christ must be proclaimed. So we recognize the foundation, the foundational need for Christ, who also says that we need each other. How can we say, no, that's not true. I only need you. That is unbiblical. Does that reflect spiritual thinking or worldly thinking? Worldly thinking, that's what it reflects. Right. So when we talk about the church, I, I want to know, is anyone here, married couples, uh, together more than, more than 10 years? 10 years? All right, hold, hold your hands up. We're going to see who's married the longest. 20 years? 20 years. 30 years. 40. How long? 49. 49 years. Thank you. 49 years. And I w- I'd be willing to bet that if we were to ask you, you know, like, hey, what's the secret? It would include things like investing your time and energy and love, commitment, right? It takes all these things. When Marianne and I, in our your 49 years, were like 49 days comparatively, okay? But in in uh, preparing for marriage, we were each kind of like, oh, what's it going to be like? And seeking counsel, we read books together. And nothing really, really can prepare you, right? It's an adventure. No one can really, really prepare you for it. But in leading up to it, there was a lot of talk about, you know, you guys got to pray hard because this idea of two sinners getting together and trying to form a lifelong relationship is tough uh, for a myriad of reasons. Is that true? Does uh, married couples, right? Is that true? It takes commitment. Uh, so when we talk about the church, which is not just two sinners getting together, but a bunch of us, what makes you think that it would, be, it would come easy and that it doesn't take any of those things and that you can just attend and think, oh, it's going to happen magically? That's silly. <laughs> so when we think of our, our everyday earthly marriages, friendships, careers, studying, Sports, all this takes an investment of time and energy and practice. So too with being the church and building on the foundation and being faithful to the work that you have been called to by God, right? God calls us all to be a part of his SWAT team, to use Eugene's illustration, or to invest in the church. So when we think of a building, the, a brick saying to another brick, I don't think you should be here. I don't, I don't really like you. Go fit in somewhere else. No, no, I want to be near the top. You should be somewhere else near the bottom. That's silly and absurd, right? So um, in building on this foundation, not only is it um, preaching the gospel simply, but it should also inform the interaction that we have with each other, right? So... So as the church, what does it look like when the gospel informs our interaction with each other? Well, where there is sin, you would readily find forgiveness. 
where there was hurt and trial and tribulation, you would readily find prayer and comfort. When people look at interaction between church members, they would note a special selflessness because when church members look at the foundation, the cross of Christ, they notice a special selflessness. So how could they also not be selfless towards one another? They should also notice a deep, deep love that brings the church together. And these are all different but not exhaustive ways that the gospel informs how we should be a church together. Okay? Let us talk about the foundation. The foundation of Christ. Christ gives the building three things. His existence, his unity, and identity. We are to be united around the common message of Christ and him crucified. We see this over and over again. You notice that Paul is spending a lot of time talking against divisions and about unity. Do you think that it is maybe important? Maybe. All right. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 17. And this is still in Corinthians. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then again in verse 2. Sorry, not verse 2. Chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he repeats a similar idea at the beginning of chapter 3. right? So if the foundation is anything other than Christ, the building ceases to exist. And what does this look like in the church? We are to preach the gospel and maintain sound doctrine and fully adopt our heavenly identity. The Corinthians wanted, remember, a earthly expression of identity in the church instead of heavenly identity expression. So this idea of division and unity, right? Uh, let's not take it to an extreme and say, hey, we must be united no matter what. Are there, are there reasons, are there good reasons for the church to divide. Yes, there are. But, but, we have to be very particular about those reasons, okay? So for example, I'm gonna tell you a couple of stories. One, back in college, I went to Biola University, which is a Christian college, and part of that, part of that application process is you are interviewed by, I don't think it's, a, it's a, like a professor, but just some staff member who interviews you, hey, what is the gospel? What text would you use? And, uh, it's, you know, to make sure you are evangelical, right? So everybody has to go through this process. And I remember uh, the first month of being there, my roommate, Bo, and I, we were just wandering the halls, and we said, hey, let's go get dinner. So we bumped into another guy. His name was Eric. And we said, hey, let's have dinner together because we don't know each other. Let's get to know each other. Fine, we went to dinner together, and we were talking about, I don't know how, we were talking about Paul and one of the epistles. I don't remember which one. What I do remember is, in the conversation, Eric shook his head like, no. What do you mean? Well, I mean, the Bible's pretty good, but I think Paul's a lunatic. And most of the stuff he writes, I I just can't believe. Okay. And so, uh, a flood of thoughts came through my mind. Like, were you interviewed, dude? (laughs) Can I see your Bible? Are there pages missing? 
you know? Okay, so that, that's an example of something maybe you should think about dividing over. Another example is um, a few of us go up to Trinity High School, which is just a couple blocks up, up the hill here, just to hang out with the, the high school students, see where they're at. You know, because you go to a Christian school, it doesn't mean you're a Christian, right? So we, that's our presupposition. And when we go up there, we just want to make friends with the high school students and see if there's a gospel work that we can do in their lives. So I had this a conversation with another dude named Eric. Um, and so when talking with him, super smart kid, and he said, you know, I used to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Now I'm a Christian. I'm like, oh, what do you mean by that? So in our conversation, he's, he, you know, he, he mentions Jesus and as the conversation rolled on, other things that he said were something like, yeah, I do believe Jesus is God, but that doesn't mean there, are other ways to, there aren't other ways to heaven or other things to believe. They're all equally true. You could be a Catholic or a Hindu or a Buddhist, and as long as you have love in your heart, you're okay. You'll, you'll make it because Jesus was all about love, right? Sounds, sounds sketchy. And it should. So what I'm saying is this. Uh, unity, is that important? Absolutely, 100%. And each of us should be chipping in, right, as in a relationship, marriage, friendship, like that. But there are also things to divide over. We just have to be careful about what we divide over. So when we look at the scale of potential things to divide over, okay, uh, whether the pastor is funny or not is not quite the same as, is he a Trinitarian, Right? I don't quite like the color of the pews or the print on the carpet, right? All roads lead to Jesus, you see? Very, very different, okay? All right, does that make sense? Okay, so I'm not saying we, we should actively try to split, but we need to be particular about what we split upon. Okay, um, okay. Building on the foundation a little more. We must ensure the purity of the gospel preached and the soundness of the doctrine taught. All other church activities should also be tethered to this. So not only in the way we relate to it together, but how we do church, right? So if preaching the gospel happens in the pulpit, so too should the singing of the songs. Or when we gather together for a small group, the gospel informs all those church activities, right? It's not... Well, I'll do gospel stuff when church is important or on Sunday, and then outside of that, we can just turn that off. There's no such thing. Remember, Christian, it will be found out by fire on the day of the Lord. So we live in light of that. Okay. Lastly, God's precious temple. Verse, two verses. Verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. A couple of observations here. The way he starts this little section, do you not know? He, sa- he uses this phrase several times in, the, in this book, and I want to bring your attention to it because every time you see this phrase, you should think... What he's following this with is an obvious fact that we should all know, right? Like, this is basic Christian doctrine that I'm about to point to. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You should already know this, Corinthians. And that God's spirit dwells in you? You should already know that, Corinthians, okay? So whenever you see that phrase in this book, that's what he's trying to highlight, you see? 
Also, if you have spent any good amount of time in the church, there is always language of, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Well, in you. The Holy Spirit is in you, right? Which is not wrong, but this is not what he's talking about here. The you is plural, okay? So collective you. So let's hear this again. Plural you. Do you, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? Like that, right? Plural you. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you collectively are that temple. With that kind of language, do you think God takes church seriously or not? (laughs) Quite seriously, we have language of destruction, right? And if we look kind of at the church attendees or the culture today, we have an entire gamut of people, right? Those who, I will never darken the doorway of a church. I will only go on Christmas and Easter. I will only go, but I will not participate. I will go and participate when it's convenient. So there's a, there's a whole spectrum of people. Um, but if we had an understanding of what Scripture says consistently about the church, we should understand as believers that church, when we gather together, is not to be taken lightly. It's not, well, I guess it works on my schedule today. Singing songs is not really my thing. But I guess if we have to do it, we're going to do it. i got to listen to this guy talk for how long? I don't even like that book, and he's not really funny. Right? These are all questions that can pop up. I'm not accusing anyone. All right. But God takes it seriously. And I would like to remind you that there's a direct correlation with how you view and participate in the church and your spiritual maturity. Paul says so. He calls them infants at the very beginning. Right? <clears throat> also consider, and I think this is beautiful, how backwards or seemingly upside down God's process is. This is what I mean. At the very beginning of the text, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, right? So these people that the Corinthians were worshiping at the feet of, Paul says they're servants. These guys you put on a pedestal, servants. They're nothing before God. This temple, uh, the background of the Corinthians, in that town, like big, beautiful temples, buildings, that's what you expect to run into. And he's saying here, it's not the building, man. It is when you all collect together. There is an importance to that. God dwells within you, plural, when you gather together, not in these buildings. Consider, too, the stones. If you're going to build something, what kind of building material would you get? The worst, right? I'm gonna, if I'm going to build a treehouse for my daughter, right? I want rotten wood. I want wood that smells like socks. I want rusty nails. That, that's foolish. Except if we consider God's building, the church, he didn't get the best of materials. He got us. That's who he chose. There's something backwards and seemingly upside down about that because the stones are imperfect. Also, in the culture of the Corinthians, where your status is earned how much you can accomplish, and, and that's, that's where your identity sits. Our identity is not earned as a believer and as a church. It is thrust upon us by the sovereign God, by the one who owns the garden, the one who is the foundation of the building, right? And the message, the foundation that we corral around, 
this folly to the perishing. Why, wouldn't, why couldn't we get a happier message? The message that we are supposed to rally around is we all have a problem. It's sin. And because of that problem, you're going to go to hell forever because God is holy and you are not. We couldn't have a more welcoming message, right? There's, there's a rub to it. Well, yeah, Christ died for us, though. Also, this temple, the idea of the temple. Um, it's best, I think, to, do, be, to be described as uh, like a mystical bond in the body of Christ. You remember back in the Old Testament, we have, what, the tabernacle? Yes, and then the temple. But those, those buildings were not the end goal of themselves. They were not the chief end. They pointed to a dwelling of God among his people that goes far beyond just a building. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus calls himself greater than the temple. In Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 says the building itself is rendered obsolete. And in John 2, Jesus claims that he is the true temple. So the temple, throughout all of Scripture, that is kind of the end goal, is just the dwelling of God among his people, in his people collected together. And there's a specialness to that, right? So, the correlation of how serious we take church and how serious we see the gospel is readily evident and is an indicator of our spiritual maturity, right? If church is just a convenience to you, what does that say about your view of the gospel? If being a church member is not serious business to you, what does that say of your view of the gospel? If you look at the building here, First Baptist Church in Monterey, not the building, but us, the building, right? what does it say about the foundation? What do people notice when you get together and be the church? Do they notice the foundation that you are built on? Okay? We cannot forget what is foundational, that what has brought us together is not donuts or coffee or songs or a good time, but the fact that we all were recruited by the gardener, by the builder, to build and to garden because we, we remember that we should not have been recruited in the first place, but he did so anyway. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, which you have preserved for us to study. We thank you for your grace that has saved us from our sins. We thank you for your church, Lord that we can gather collectively to remember you and worship you with hearts full of gratitude, that we can share in this life until we are called to our actual home. So be with us, I pray. Give us wisdom and be patient with us as we kind of flounder about to discover and express truly the heavenly identity that you've given to us. I pray this all in your name. Amen.